Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, the remarkable medicinal history of beer, wine, spirits and cocktails with Camper English and his new book, The Perfect Tonic. Camper English is a cocktail and spirits writer and speaker who has covered the craft cocktail renaissance for more than 15 years, contributing to more than 50 publications around the world, including Popular Science, Savoir, Details, Whiskey Advocate and Drinks International. With a focus on the nerdy side of mixology, he has studied everything from the history of carbonation to the science of clear ice cubes. And as an aside, I use Camper's method for making clear ice at home myself, and I can highly recommend it. Look it up. He has been awarded the International Cognac Writer of the Year by the Bureau National Interprofessionale de Cognac and Best Cocktail Writer at the Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards. And he has been voted as one of the 100 most influential people in the global drinks industry for several years running. And now Camper has written a book, which we're going to talk about today, The Perfect Tonic, The Remarkable Medicinal History of Beer, Wine, Spirits and Cocktails. Camper, welcome to Little Atoms. Hey, thank you for having me. Tell us, first of all, then, roughly what the idea is behind the book. The concept is it's the, the overlapping history of alcohol and medicine from ancient times, more or less through today, though there's a lot less about it after the creation of penicillin and how those histories are locked together throughout all time. So it's really a, um, a much deeper look than I had planned on for medicinal history of alcohol and the alcoholic history of medicine. So as you said, you start off looking at the most ancient uses of beer and wine for medical purposes um, and things like you know Galen and the humor system and things. What I want to talk about from the, the ancient time period is tell us what, and I'm going to pronounce both of these probably wrong, but what are theriac and mithridate or mithridate? Uh, those are cure-all, anti-venom, anti-poison medicines. And they come out of a, a legend of a king, um, Mithridates, or however we say it, who uh, was taking an anti-venom for everything. And then he decided to kill himself after a defeat in battle, but he couldn't do it because he was already immune to all poisons. And so he had to have someone run him through with a sword instead. And so what, what's the makeup of these things? Or what do we think? Because obviously we're talking about ancient medicine here, but what, what do we think they were? Well, I think for the most part, they're everything. Every Today we would call them spices for the most part. 
and they evolved from complicated recipes to incredibly complicated recipes over the centuries and uh, ended up being prepared in large ceremonies in Italy uh, into, say, the 1500s and become the root of the word treacle. And I raise these two things because you also have a chapter on monks and the various things from, from beer to liqueurs that, and to buckfast, as everyone in this country will know, are things that you know monks produce to make a living out of. And there seems to be a direct link from one of these um, Mithridates things to something that we would drink now, like Chartreuse, isn't there? It does seem to be a, a through line because the medicines got more and more complicated, but also more expensive and more marketed. There were sort of branded containers in which to put your Theriac and Mithridates, and it could be used sort of like a, as a daily medicine, or you might take more if something bad happened to you. And by the end of their sort of lifetimes, they had things like crushed pearls and gold and things like that inside them to sort of justify their expense, I believe. However, out of these complicated, largely herbal medicines, we probably get the cure-all herbal liqueurs of the Middle Ages produced by uh, the monks and nuns in monasteries who were largely creating beneficial medicines for the community. So they would all have their own herb gardens and distillation areas and apothecaries as part of being the educated people of the Middle Ages, and they would prepare the all-purpose cure-all with an alcohol base, from which that looks kind of a lot like chartreuse does today, and as well as provide specific medical care and have hospitals. Moving us forward a little bit up to the Enlightenment times, and you talk about the links between the introduction or the invention of commercially produced fizzy water like mineral water which we would have got from you know natural carbonated springs at some point to the actual study and discovery and you know the identification of various gases yes that was one of the most interesting parts of the book for me to learn about i had the concept of you know going out into the countryside and taking the waters uh, as people did to um try to recover their health after living in cities most of the year. Well, those waters, people documented which ones were supposedly better for different medical conditions like anemia. And the waters that were fizzy were considered particularly beneficial for people. So these waters were often bottled up and sold sort of in the gift shop on the way back home. But uh, people tried to replicate the specific mineral makeup of different spas around Europe. And in particular, they really wanted to create what we know today as carbonated water, because the particular virtues of the certain springs were that the water was fizzy. From that goal, um, we get the first earliest carbonation devices to produce carbonated water purely to make healthy water. And uh, an early version was called the mephitic julep, which is in a long tradition of the word julep as it evolved into a cocktail much later. However, the waters, uh, everyone tried to replicate them, including uh, Mr. Schweppes, uh, from which we get the Schweppes tonic water of today. But that person's first invention was a large format carbonation device. So scientists were also studying these waters, medical scientists, uh, for the most part, to talk about their different properties. And they noticed that the gas 
off of fizzy water was unique. It eventually led to the understanding of the air that we breathe is not just one thing and made up of individual gases. Now, the study of those gases was certainly assisted by the studying of the fermentation of beer and wine. So we have the purely chemical process of the fizzy water coming up from natural volcanically charged springs. And then we have the biological process of fermentation of beer. These weren't known to be different systems initially. The, the fermentation of beer was thought to be a chemical process as well. And Louis Pasteur in particular studied the properties of beer and wine through newly improved microscopes. He had the idea that certain um, solids produced in the fermentation of wine could only be produced from a biological process. And from that, we get essentially the germ theory of fermentation and eventually the germ theory of disease, which he is one of the people credited uh, with coming up with that. So the study essentially of carbonation has produced uh, wonderful information that has then led to advancements in medicine. So that's an example of where I was talking about uh, the influence of alcohol, uh, in this case, mixers as well, on medicine, rather than just the use of alcohol as medicine. I can't I realize I skipped over something from the um, from the ancient part that I can't let go. So this is not something that's going to lead to an important advance in medicine later on. But I want to talk about the brief fashion for eating mummies and also something that you describe in the book as corpse medicine. Yes, the era of medicine during which corpus medicine was popular is hilarious and gross. And um, there is an entire book on it that I used a lot in my research called, I think it's called Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires, but I may have the order of those monsters out of order. And we learn that use of corpses of different sorts in the practice of medicine was extremely common and to treat different conditions. So uh, there were comments from the era of the Greeks and the Roman on the silliness, for lack of a better word, of uh, drinking the blood of freshly killed gladiators to attempt to cure epilepsy. And then the mummies come probably from a tar that was usually found on the surface of the desert, but was used in the embalming process of mummies. So the medicine was this tar but you could get it from mummies because it wasn't easy to find on the surface. And over time, the idea that it was the tar became lost and people were just after the mummies. And using mummies in medicine became so popular that they ran out of mummies and then would have backup people that you could use. And eventually it got so that people who were executed for crimes um, were considered ripe for the harvest to make medicine with. And people even made counterfeit mummies by preparing people in a way that made them look like ancient mummies. So popular was mummy medicine. You talk about a, a couple of the ways in which alcohol was involved in, in the finding of cures for common ailments in the, in the sort of age of exploration. And the, the one that most people were familiar with is, is scurvy and you know the, the eventual discovery that citrus was the cure for scurvy. Um, but the one I'd like you to talk about is I was not aware previously of the link between one of my favorite drinks, root beer, and cures for syphilis. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, pretty fun to learn. And the fact that syphilis was probably brought back to Europe with Columbus. 
which is something I had no awareness of. So it's possible that syphilis was uh, endemic in Europe in a lesser uh, virulent form that didn't do all of the terrible things that it did to late stage syphilitics in, in particular. But within a few decades of Columbus returning from the New World, syphilis spread as a disease very fast around around the whole the rest of the world at, at the time. Within a couple decades, it was everywhere. And late stage syphilis causes really horrible conditions. And there's estimates to the percentage of people in the insane asylums of the time of being people suffering from late stage syphilis, which drove people mad. So the search for the cure for the disease, they thought they were going to find the cure in the place where the disease was from. And so they looked to the new world for a cure for this disease. There was a particular tree bark that had a brief heyday as a possible cure, but really it's the ingredients that we might know associated with root beer today, sassafras and sarsaparilla, that were considered um, great herbal medicines in all different aspects, but particularly they were going to be the cure for syphilis. And so there was a big run on these herbs with special ships sent over just to collect them to try to cure Europeans of the horrible disease. And well, I, I would imagine it didn't really work a lot. <laughs> but the, the fact that root beer, innocent, charming, humble root beer, today we associate it with more of a wintergreen flavor, but it was not directly carbonated root beer as a cure for syphilis, but its ingredients for sure were thought to be a cure. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Camper English and we're talking about his book, The Perfect Tonic, The Remarkable Medicinal History of Beer, Wine, Spirits and Cocktails. And Camper, to begin the second half, I'd like to talk about something which is, there's a lot of people out there, you know, like libertarians and small government type peoples. And over here in the UK, you know, the people that wanted us to come out of the European Union that go on about, you know, government red tape and stuff. And a good thing to throw back at all of these people is the Pure Food and Drug Act of the US of the 1920s. Tell us about some of the insane things that people used to adulterate drinks with before this. Well, the Pure Food and Drug Act was a regulation in the United States about drugs, uh, as in pharmaceuticals, about food and about alcohol, which was more or less considered somewhere between food and medicine at the time. But particularly egregious products on the market included milk for children, and it had all sorts of horrific preservatives in it, including formaldehyde, and it could be colored white with chalk. And there's even grosser materials that were in some of it to make it frothy. And that probably killed many, many children in this era of the industrial age when people were working in slaughterhouse and other big factories, new immigrants to the United States toiling under terrible uh, working conditions. And as part of the progressive movement in America at the time, by which I mean the late 1800s, uh, we end up getting the Pure Food and Drug Act. Now, of course, the, the food was preserved like that. Meats and other canned products were also had things to make them look fresher added to them colorings and uh, preservatives that have since been shown to be extremely unsafe. And there were no regulations in the United States at that time that said you couldn't do that. Um, It was all about supporting the industry and not regulating the industry. But too many people were were dying and being poisoned. Uh, The whiskey was advertised as an aged product, but often just a colored product, sometimes with tobacco or tobacco spit and other colorings. There were uh, books that listed how you basically start with a barrel of neutral spirit and then be able to sell it as Irish whiskey or Scotch whiskey or gin or something else. And then the medicines at the time were the patent medicines, aka the snake oils, cure-alls that were supposed to cure everything from cancers to coughs. And for the most part, those were alcohol with some herbs in them. And again, often some unsafe, inedible materials. The regulation in the Pure Food and Drug Act of uh, 1906, I believe, was really a law against false advertising and a little bit the resulting laws in, in the years right after there tightened it up a bit. So we had, you couldn't advertised that this snake oil cured anything but what it had been proven to cure. So that put a lot of companies out of business. The food became safer. Uh, The alcohol and some of the medicines might have still have things like alcohol and cocaine in tooth drops, for example, but now they had to be honest about it on the label and put percent alcohol and things like that. So it starts off as a labeling law, and uh, we're still living in the shadow of this uh, great piece of legislation in the United States and how it fixed a lot of problems really instantly. And then a few years later, we went into prohibition in the United States, and people were making fake whiskey again. 
Amber, if I go to my grave never hearing the words tobacco spit again, I will be happy. It's just unimaginable. <laughs> <laughs> the contents of one of those spittoons and, and colour colour whiskey with it. It's just, oh, moving on swiftly. Let's talk about the, the story of gin and tonic, this wonderful British drink and and its links with the, um, the search for the cure for malaria. Well, malaria is a very, very old disease caused by a parasite that feeds off of both mosquitoes and animals, not just humans, but several others species. And uh, from earliest recorded history, people would complain about the symptoms of malaria, alternating uh, fever and chills and enlarged spleens, um, going back to very ancient times. So back uh, looking at around the 1600s, Rome had a particularly bad malaria problem. Uh, But uh, missionaries, uh, Jesuit priests from Italy were traveling the world for their, their missions. And the Jesuit priests who were in Peru and Bolivia at the time learned from the indigenous people there of something that stopped the shakes from the fever and and shakes there. There was probably no malaria in the New World at the time. So it's a remarkable medicinal coincidence that the thing that just cured the symptoms of a disease end up curing and preventing that disease, which was malaria. So the Jesuits were, of course, familiar with malaria in Rome. It had killed a lot of popes over the years, and they sent some of the medicine back. Turns out it works. There was a oh, 100 years or so of uncertainty about whether this was Catholic witchcraft and whether it was safe for Protestants to use. But eventually, it was shown to be the only effective cure uh, at the time. So that, it comes from a the cinchona tree. So it's cinchona tree bark extremely bitter, and you would always need to drink that with a liquid of some sort. Water, generally not safe to drink, so people would drink it with beer, with wine. There are references to cinchona bark taken with sherry and with whiskey and with uh, pink lemonade for the people who were uh, building the Panama Canal much later in history. But this uh, miracle cure, the fever tree bark, it allowed for expansion of the colonial superpowers into places like Africa and India. And, you know, fast forward a long time, we get to the gin and tonic. So as we talked about earlier, bottled carbonated beverages were thought to be healthy, healthy if not directly medicinal, and all sorts of healthy flavorings and were added to them, one of which ended up being the now isolated quinine from cinchona tree bark. But the quinine was used in a lot of different alcoholic products that's still around today. We just, I think people have just forgot that things like Dubonnet and some other fortified wines, as well as some vermouths, as well as pretty much every Italian bitter liqueur has quinine in it still, providing a sort of sharp, subtle, bitter backbone to the drink. But onto the gin and tonic. So we had our soda water with our quinine in it, extremely bitter. So there's sugar added to that beverage that could be consumed as sort of, um, you know, a healthy, a healthy beverage in general or a malaria preventative. Although people were taking pill form of quinine in those days. So we find the reference to the gin and tonic. The early one so far is from the 1860s. And it's in India by someone commenting on 
a horse race. And so after the race broke up, we uh, retired for drinks like the brandy and soda and gin and tonic, etc. It had already been at that point a uh, recreational beverage rather than a purely medicinal one, um, though people would use it for that as well. The gin, of course, has its own medicinal botanicals in it, juniper most notably, but then supporting and more for flavoring, backing botanicals. Juniper was used as a spice. It was used, still is used to flavor meat and other foods, but it had some particular uses of its own. The most commonly cited of which was as a diuretic and an old nickname for gin was diddle drain in order to uh, assist with urination. But they come together, the gin and the tonic, and of course, a squeeze of lime. That's going to be great for scurvy. Although I think it was just added because it tastes so great in that drink. Uh, that's in India in the late 1800s. And soon after in the literature, we see it popping up in Buenos Aires in Argentina, where the British also were, and it spreads from there. All the way into the 1950s, it had very much still, the gin and tonic had still been associated heavily with the British, and it wasn't uh, known in America very well. But we see some cocktail book authors from the 1940s and 50s comment on it, first as this exotic beverage. Uh, there's a great quote in the book from Charles H. Baker, who say it's um, for American hosts who want to impress their guests by having visited the Orient, basically saying, oh, I haven't had the Singapore sling since I stayed at the Raffles. Very similar situation. Your gin and tonic is something you had on your travels abroad. And uh, we also saw at that time in the 1940s and 1950s, these book authors saying that uh, you wouldn't want to have too many of the gin and tonic because the tonics has medicine in it and it's going to too much of that will give you a terrible hangover type sensation the next day because it was still medicinal. And that was actually true. And in modern times, bartenders are trying to recreate old world cocktail ingredients using the cinchona tree bark directly, using a bit too much of it and giving people this cinchonism, these symptoms of too much cinchona bark in their beverages again. Luckily, that's not too common uh, a practice, but it's it has come up. Well, I was going to ask you about this at the end, but we'll, we'll go straight into it now because because widen this out from the book. Another one of your interests is this way in which you know modern mixologists are starting to try to recreate um, old recipes and and you know do sort of artisanal syrups and things in their bars, often not knowing that some of these things might be dangerous. So tell us about your work there. Yeah, so a few years back, uh, seeing the homemade tonic water, but also um, uses of things like tobacco. And tobacco bitters sort of make sense from a flavor perspective to put in your old fashioned and drinks and stuff like that. But I don't think people are aware of how absolutely poisonous it is to put even small amounts of tobacco and liquor. It's illegal as well, but uh, I don't think people have been considering that very much. And so there were some discussions online about, oh, we shouldn't do this. Let's spread the word. And one thing I can do pretty easily is build websites. So I created a website called cocktailsafe.org, and it lists tons of ingredients. And if they're dangerous, uh, information about that. And if they are regulated, information about that as well. Because some things might be, a lot of the legislation is very conservative 
around these ingredients, but the regulations are there for a reason. So I think that bartenders should be aware that too much of a good thing when it comes to both medicine and alcohol can go very bad. And we'll finish up then going back to ice. I said at the beginning in the introduction that you have a special interest in ice and you talk about ice in the book and now making cocktails would be unimaginable without vast quantities of ice. But it wasn't always that way. And indeed, there are still some cultures around the world where ice is frowned upon. For sure. Yeah, certain cultures really don't like cold beverages, cold water in particular, and ice in drinks. I used to do a lot of cocktail catering for some tech companies in the Bay Area. And I would be aware in advance that a lot of people were going to ask me for the same drinks, but without ice. And would have to prepare for that by sort of building in some dilution and just having a a stock of drinks that were cold but didn't have ice. So they tasted somewhat similar to the drinks everyone else was having. But that's um, that goes back to a lot of beliefs about uh, cold water causing stomach upset. And I haven't had that problem, but I'm also American. We love our ice when we visit Europe. We're like, but there are only two cubes in this drink. What is wrong with you? And uh, you know we're the the home of the great big the big gulp that you get at the gas station, and it's filled with slushy ice and sugar flavoring, as American as apple pie. But uh, yeah, ice didn't get into cocktails until we put the date around the 1830s. The cocktails that were created before that, for the most part, didn't have ice, or it was a novelty if they did, and that includes the mint julep, a drink we highly associate was specialty ice today. But if we look at the first recorded recipe for the cocktail, the cocktail meaning spirit, sugar, water, bitters, if you think of the old-fashioned today, that is the cocktail in its format, splitting off from juleps and slings and punches, other cocktail formats. Those uh, drinks did not have ice before um, the 1830s. So the cocktail, we find the first reference to it roughly uh, in 1803. It's defined in 1806. The first recipe for it comes out a couple decades later, um, right about the time that ice is starting to become popular. So they cite water in the original recipe for the cocktail, not ice. But by the time the first cocktail books came out in the 1860s, they specify ice, use a chunk of ice or a, a bit of ice in those drinks. So that's roughly the era when we get ice into cocktails. And then the fashion for cooling drinks becomes very associated with America. And when people visit America in that time period, they always, always comment, one, about all of the the cocktails and the mixed drink, but two, about the ice that's used in uh, the drinks and how it's so unique and charming. And uh, uh, we should do that back at home. And it becomes so associated with America that the American bars are set up, like in the hotel bars around Europe, And ice is one of the ingredients to have in your American bar to be more like these exotic, wonderful drinks. So I've been talking to Camper English. We've been talking about his book, The Perfect Tonic, The Remarkable Medicinal History of Beers, Wines, Spirits and Cocktails, which is out in the UK from William Collins. Camper, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thanks a lot. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up.
The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.